morning, chapter 4, continuing on what, really kind of defining what godliness actually is, um, as opposed to what false godliness looks like. Um, you know, we, at the beginning of this uh, chapter 4, we talked about um, how Paul says, you know, that there's a couple of things that are just common, that the Spirit says are, are going to be common sins in the church, and that is the forbidding of marriage and the forbidding of eating certain foods. And we've talked the last couple of weeks about how that's true. And then last week, um, had a good sermon from um, Rick, if you were able to log in online, um, to just remind us of the gospel and our need for it each and every day. It was very good. Um, and... This is what results when we don't believe the simple gospel, is we begin to add all kinds of rules and regulations to life as a means of attaining godliness. Um, So let's read this morning um, verses 6 through 10 of 1 Timothy 4. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank that you, you gave it through the Apostle Paul for our ears this morning. And we pray that your spirit who spoke through Paul would open our ears to it this morning. Thank you, and we ask this in the name of your son. Amen. Um, the, the reality of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks with the forbidding of marriage, specifically within this gay celibate movement that's afoot, and the forbidding of certain foods to make yourself feel like you're really doing something great. It's not new to the church. Um, it's been around almost since the beginning. Um, and those kinds of things were especially seen um, in things like um, monks and abbots abbots and those sorts of things who would be very severe to their bodies and forbid themselves to eat food. And they would oftentimes almost starve themselves. They would also take vows of silence where they wouldn't speak for months or years at a time. And everyone would look at them and think, what a, what a holy man this is. You know, look at how gaunt he is. Look at how much he has deprived himself. And we still do this to some extent. Um, it struck me this morning as I was finishing up... Uh, preparing for the sermon, just praying through final thoughts, that sort of thing, that the thing that is so striking about especially the gay celibate movement is the fact that everyone who does it is promoted as like this super religious person who has suffered more than the average Christian. It's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. The Christian life isn't about like making sure that you suffer the right amount and then that makes you godly. Like forbidding yourself from doing things and making yourself gaunt. And so I, I read, I'm not going to read this whole underline section. You're welcome. But these are, these are the sermons of John Calvin on First Timothy. 
that I that I read every week before I preach these. Um, and you know, John Calvin, five hundred years ago, very different context, right? He's in Geneva, start the the prime of the Reformation. Um, this was he preached through First Timothy after he had gotten kicked out of Geneva, so the church told him to leave. The church fired him. A few years later, the same church was like, please come back. And so he picked up and he was preaching again. Um, and this is, this is what he's talking about in, in this section. Um, and it just goes right along with what I've been thinking about this week. Um, and so I'm going to read just portions of this underline. Um, it is recorded in the history of the church as a great virtue that a certain monk, minding to practice a psalm which he sung every morning, went seven years without speaking. When they saw this, they marveled, and how? Behold, such a hermit who is ravished, as it were, with holiness. He has completely forsaken the world. If his own sister goes to him, he will not speak to her. Oh, what virtue is this? And again, when the world sees that these silly souls do not lie down, nor eat, only, nor eat not only any meat, but no bread, nor drink half their belly full of water, nor discern between well water and puddle water, is this not a great matter? We see that then that when men are occupied in such things, the world praises them above the skies and thinks they are like nothing else in the world. That we tend to do this. We tend to look at someone who who tells us how much they're suffering for the sake of Christ, and we just think that they're more holy, that they have some stroke of holiness that we don't have because we're just normal people. We, we haven't forsaken the world like they have. And so they, it's like we give them this claim to godliness that is theirs and not ours. And we make them into saints, different from the rest of us who are also saints. I don't know if this is ringing a bell, but this is common still in Roman Catholicism, this sort of thing, this glorifying of severity to the body. And we do it too. We think that those men and women who are able to do certain things that are severe to the body are greater than the rest of us. And oftentimes those people brag about it. The thing that's most disconcerting, again, is the fact that with this gay celibate movement, these are the guys who are being published in Christianity Today, and on Desiring God, and the Gospel Coalition, all these places where everyone goes to read about the next greatest thing, and then they hear these braggarts say, look at me, look at what I've suffered because I haven't been able to get married because I'm gay and I've just suffered more than all the rest of you and I have this special unique holiness that none of the rest of you possess because you've never had to suffer like me. It's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. And so then listen, listen to how... John Calvin, who we think of this high-minded theologian, right? This guy who is esoteric and just above the rest of us. This is what he says. But let us consider two poor laboring men that are in their houses. There is one that has charge of children and is in great need, and therefore must strain himself to the uttermost to get his living. When he comes home, one child cries. Another is thin, and another is sick. And this poor man must bear all these burdens, and oftentimes he does not have the means to nourish himself and his family. Well, the poor man commends himself to God and goes about his work. And then when he eats and has the means to feed himself, he knows that God has blessed the labor of his hands. Upon this, he goes to bed. 
And if there be anything that troubles him, he surrenders it to God and commends his cause to him. And when he takes his rest, he does, not, he does it not only to the end that the rest of his life thus may be more fit to labor, so he doesn't just sleep so that he can labor more, but also to be received that the rest which is prepared for us in heaven, that he knows there's a final rest after all this toiling and striving. Well, this pain seems to have no great show. This man doesn't make an ostentation of his life of difficulty. He doesn't say, woe is me. Look at the suffering which is upon me for all this holiness I am rendering. He's just trying to be faithful to God, be satisfied with what God has given him, and to work hard under the Lord. And then he says again, there's, there's a handicraftsman who labors with his hands. And though he works very hard, yet oftentimes he does not have the means to feed himself, but passes on that day and gives thanks to God that he has lent him his health. He comforts himself, notwithstanding, for he knows that his life pleases God. Although the world despises him and makes no account of him, yet he knows that all this comes from God's hand. When we compare these two, we perceive better what St. Paul's meaning is when he says that the fear of God or that godliness is useful in all things. It is true that the world will condemn it. We do not see what the simplicity of a poor man is worth. And so John Calvin saw this and saw just kind of the way I do, which is that godliness is not meant to be showy. How do we know that? Well, we know that because Jesus himself tells us that sort of thing, right? Do not let your right hand know what your left is doing. When you pray, don't do it like the hypocrites who stand on the corner. But go into your closet and pray quietly. And God who sees you will reward you. That the life of godliness is not ostentatious. It is just a simple life of faith. It's just trusting every day that God is actually going to do all the things that he has said he's going to do, which is to give us life and happiness in him. That's what he's going to do. And that's all we're living for. Listen again. Listen again to this. So if you put these things, which are that there are going to be false teachers who come, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. You will have been trained by the words of faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. He's calling that an irreverent, silly myth. And our ESVs translate it silly myth. Um, the word is actually old wives' tales. It's, it's very derogatory. <laughs> It's not a nice word. It's, it's, it's supposed to mock the men who think themselves proud by saying, you're acting like a crazy old lady when you talk like this. Like, you know the old lady who's just kind of nuts and like talks to her cats and is just over there in her own little world? When you talk about forbidding marriage and forbidding food, you're like a crazy old lady. That's what Paul says, okay? Rather, so instead of being an irreverent, crazy old lady, with these myths you have. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So he's saying, that is not godliness. That's not godliness. What is godliness? For while bodily training, and I don't think he means uh, like working out, um, although gymnasiums existed back then, I think he's talking about this severity of the body, training the body, forbidding marriage, abstaining from food, you know, trying to just like 
keep your body in check. It's got some value. Godliness is of a value in every way. It holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so here's where I want to kind of sit this morning. I, I think the reason we fall into the trap of believing the crazy old wife tales about what godliness is and what holiness looks like is because we forget that God has promised us not just the life to come, not just a great reward then, but reward now. What is that reward? Well, it's not money. It's not great wealth and that sort of thing that the world looks to. I'm going to flip to Matthew 5. You can turn there if you want. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And it's specifically um, the Beatitudes. Okay? Seeing the crowds... Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so this is talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And we think it's, it's all out there. The kingdom of heaven is to come. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who who are not bragging about all the holiness of themselves, but they're poor in spirit. They know they don't really have anything to offer other than themselves to God. Blessed are those who mourn. What are we mourning over? Our sin? The fact that decades into this Christian life, we still get mad at people and still say things we shouldn't? The fact that we still think bad thoughts about friends of ours. The fact that we don't trust God, that he will come through this time, even though he's come through a thousand times before. We mourn over that. And what does God say? Those who mourn, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. What do you have for godliness in this life? You have the comfort of a holy God. Is there anything that can compare to that kind of price? We were talking about it this morning in Sunday school. The fact that we know that the God who made the universe and all that is in it cares for us, knows us, sees us, hears us. Here's what Paul had to say about this comfort. This is from 2 Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is, this is the ministry of the church, is to comfort one another. When we sin and we fail, and we... We come alongside and we don't just say, hey, you did sin and you did fail. We also say, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for those who sin and fail. That's, that's why we gather, is so that you will be reminded that though you sin and though you fail, he is with you. That, that belongs to those who practice godliness. It does not belong to those who trumpet their holiness. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. 
You know, in this, that chunk of the sermon that I read from John Calvin, these were just humble men doing their lives, caring for his family, working to provide food, shelter, trusting himself to God. That's meek. There's no, there's no highfalutin about this guy. There should be no highfalutin about us. We should be meek people. We should never be braggarts. We should never be letting people know all the cool things about our lives. We should be forever telling everyone that God has given us everything we could ever hope or ask for. Blessed are the meek, for what will they inherit? The earth. The earth. This is, we often say it, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. What is the inheritance of the sons of God? The new heavens and the new earth. We get the whole new creation as ours. You talk about an inheritance. You know, when we, when we leave our children something, it's often in terms of you know, dollars and cents and cars and houses, which still all fade and perish, disappear like the wind. We will receive an incorruptible inheritance, and it will be ours. This is what the meek get. Those who are not meek, who trumpet their holiness, receive none of it. They do not inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If we long to please God, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, he will give it to us. He won't withhold it. He won't say, you failed to abstain. You were not severe enough to your body. You don't get to eat from the table. That is not our God. Our God says, do you desire to be righteous? I will help you be righteous. And it consists in this. I mean, the passage in 1 Timothy 6, to learn to be content with food and clothing, this is godliness with great gain. You will be satisfied. He will not withdraw from you. If you're all about your own holiness, you're all about letting people know that you have already achieved it, that you already have it, and you have no hunger for it anymore, you will always be thirsty. You will always have hunger. But if you cry out to God, you've mourned over your sin, and you go, God, help me. Save me from this body of death. And then Jesus comes and he says, I am your Savior, and you will be satisfied, and you will have victory over your sin. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What does that mean? Well, I think two things. You can take it two ways. I think both are valid. Blessed are the merciful. What are you doing? Instead of trumpeting your righteousness and how much you have done and how great you are, you turn to someone who needs mercy and you actually extend mercy. You actually say to them, God is merciful. I am merciful. You didn't abstain, and that's okay. God is merciful. Or it could be 
we will be the receivers of mercy from other people. Right? This is the way the body of Christ works. We give, other people give to us in our need. We're merciful, other people are merciful to us. So I think it could be either talking about the mercy received from God for salvation or the mercy we receive from each other. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. What does that mean? Well, do you remember the three or four times that this good conscience has come up in 1 Timothy? What does that mean? It means you have sin in your life that you are regularly confessing to God so that you can have a good conscience before Him. It doesn't mean you have a perfect heart. It means you have a pure heart. You go to God and you ask Him to wipe it clean. This is Psalm 51. Right? This is David after he'd sinned with Bathsheba, had her husband killed. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, a pure heart. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. That's what a pure heart is. Constantly clean before a holy God. Because we trust that he actually forgives us. And then what is our gift for that? We will see God. How unbelievable is this gift? We will see God. We will see with unveiled faces the face of Jesus Christ. This is an immense gift to us. And we begin to see him even here. As our hearts are unveiled, our eyes are unveiled. Open the eyes of my heart that I might see God. This happens now. And it will happen then. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Instead of trumpeting your own holiness, instead of trumpeting your own righteousness, instead of saying all the good things that you have done and abstained from and not done and kept yourself pure from, go wage peace in the middle of the difficulties of sin. Um, Larry McCall, who preached my ordination sermon, um, this was his phrase, wage peace. Peacemakers are not just people who kind of flounder around hoping everything works out. Peacemakers go into the, into the conflict and make peace. A guy who's wrapped up in his own holiness will never want to be dirty with that. It's hard, dirty work to wage peace. You will add your own sin to the mess because there's no way not to. But the reward, the reward for waging peace, for being a peacemaker, you will be called sons of God. You will be able to cry out by his spirit, Abba, Father. That's for here. That's for now. That's godliness has gained now. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Right? This is really where it gets, runs right up to what everybody is claiming about this gay celibate movement and this like abstaining from food and things. Well, I'm just being persecuted. I'm just, I'm just really getting 
hammered by all these people who don't love me right. And they act like the reaction to persecution is supposed to tell everybody how persecuted you are. How much, how much you have suffered at the hands of other people. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What, what does this mean? It means when we're persecuted, we don't trumpet our persecution. We don't make it a big thing. Paul makes fun of this. How does he make fun of it? A couple different times in his, his epistles, he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you, you have a good reputation. Um, all right, so, so I was beaten three times with 39 lashes. I was shipwrecked twice. I was chained, I was jailed, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was without food. I mean, if you want to compare, Paul says, I have you beat on suffering. The persecution that you are facing, trust me, I've got it. And what does he say? It's of no value. No value. If it's not used to pursue Christ. If all you're doing is being like, look what I have suffered. Look what I have suffered. And we do this all the time. We do this with our work. We do this uh, in our society, right? We're always talking about the persecution we're under and the persecution we're facing. And some of it is real. Some of it is imagined. Some of it is real. We do feel some amount of persecution as Christians. It's not supposed to be made into a weapon. It's supposed to be made so that we entrust ourselves to the God who judges justly and that we look forward to our reward, which is the kingdom of heaven. This isn't our reward anyway. Our reward is the new heaven, the new earth. We get all that. The fact that people take stuff away here, it's of no consequence. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Remember, remember at the beginning, when with joy you accepted the plundering of your property? With joy? That's what persecution is. It's when it happens, you just go, Thank God that you counted me worthy to suffer alongside you. That's Acts chapter 4. And then finally, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now we think, all right, so this sounds like the same sort of thing, but this is what we're proclaiming, the gospel, against this kind of foolishness. You will be ridiculed by people in the Christian community for this. You say to them, there is no special place for the gay celibate guy, other than just that he is a Christian who needs to stop talking about himself so much. Listen, we all suffer. That's part of the Christian life. You don't get unique status because of your particular brand of suffering you think is better than everyone else's. They will look at you as they have looked at me, as my friends have looked at me, and I've said, you don't have a special status here. We all are guilty before a holy God. We all have things that we cannot do. And they have said all kinds of false things against me. They will say all kinds of false things against you. But here, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our job, our job, to be pleasing to God, is to proclaim the truth. To say to people, godliness is not bound up in bodily abstentions. Godliness is bound up in this, meek and lowly of heart. Hard work. 
Just, just actually work as unto the Lord. Actually just be quiet about yourself for just a little bit of your life. Don't talk about yourself all the time. So then, here we go. Um, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So how can we remind people of this? How can we help people stop believing these foolish myths, these old wives' tales, this ridiculous notion that they are somehow more holy because they have become celibate? How do we help them see we help them see that if they were just regular, old, normal, godly, just regular, old, normal, godly, just trying to work hard under the Lord, trying to love people, trying to be merciful, trying to wage peace with people, if they would just be meek and humble in heart, if they would accept persecution with joy and gladness, that God would bless them. That God would bless them. That they could actually be happy. That they could actually trust that God is actually doing something in their life. And the same is true for us. We all fall into this temptation one, one way or another. We all think that we particularly have suffered in a way somebody else hasn't, so we have something special to say. Just be meek and humble about it. You probably do have a story that would be helpful to somebody. You probably have suffered in a way that's unique. It can be helpful to tell someone that. But don't stand on that. Don't make that your bedrock of holiness. Don't make that make you think that you're somehow better than somebody else because you suffered in a particular way. Our Lord Jesus suffered and died for us. Suffered and died for us. In Hebrews 10, the part that talks about, you know, you received with joy the plundering of your property, says, you have not... Suffered to the point of shedding blood yet, have you? And be quiet. Just be quiet about it. Don't make a big deal out of your life and think you're somehow more pious. Call others to live a godly life. Help them live a godly life. And be glad that God continuously gives you blessings in this life. He comforts you. He gives you satisfaction when you hunger and thirst after righteousness. He has promised that you are sons of God. Those are uncountable riches, and they are ours today, not somewhere in the future. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We'll talk more about what the Savior of all people is next week, but note the last part, especially of those who believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you have your hope set on the living God? If so, do these things with gladness. Work like these men that John Calvin talked about. Do your work. Be glad that God continues continues to give you life and health. And then when he doesn't, praise God. Because he's counted you worthy to suffer. And if he heals you, praise God. Because he's healed you. And if you die, well, if you love God, you will definitely be praising God at that point. Your eyes will be open to him.
Let me pray for us this morning, and then we're going to take communion. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning.